Good evening. My name is Sanjeev Arora, and I'm the chair of the Public Lectures Committee at Princeton University, and I welcome you all to tonight's lecture by Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web. Uh, the lecture tonight is uh, sponsored by the Spencer Trask Fund, which was uh, started with a gift of $10,000 from Spencer Trask in the year 1891. Now, both with, uh, with the World Wide Web and with things like this, the word that comes to mind is exponential growth. And uh, I'm sure many of you are wondering how much that fund of $10,000 has grown from 1891 to today, which I won't say, but I'll, I'll do, I will mention that it has, over the years, allowed us to bring many prominent people to campus, including Niels Bohr, Arnold Toynbee, T.S. Eliot, Burton Russell, Margaret Mead, and tonight, Tim Berners-Lee. Uh, a brief uh, introduction for Tim Berners-Lee, which actually sounds a little funny to me because it's a little bit like introducing the inventor of the wheel or the automobile or any one of the handful of inventions that really changed mankind. Uh, like all great inventors, Sir Tim Berners-Lee is an idealist and a dreamer. For over 25 years, he has had a dream of interlink interlinking the world's information in a way that makes it accessible to all. Uh, one funny story, I asked him before the talk, uh, are, you, are you using PowerPoint for your talk? And he said, what, PowerPoint? An idealist never uses that. <laughs> so um, uh, as far back as 1890, sorry, 1980, by the way, many of you, uh, <laughs> Many people do not realize the difference between, I'm a computer science professor, so many people don't realize the difference between the World Wide Web and the internet. And the internet in some form or the other existed to the early 1970s or even before that. Uh, but the World Wide Web is much more recent. So uh, as far back as 1980, while working for the uh, particle accelerator CERN in Europe, uh, uh, he proposed a project to this effect, namely linking together the world's information, based on the concept of hypertext, uh, which he called Enquire. By 1989, just as the internet was becoming more popular, while at CERN, he extended his earlier ideas to create the World Wide Web, for which he designed and built the first web browser and web editor. The rest, as they say, is history. It is easy to imagine how rich Sir Berners-Lee would be today if he would earn even a dollar or a fraction of a dollar for each web browser in existence. But he, instead of seeking commercial gain from his invention, gave it all away as a gift to humanity. Today he heads the W3C Consortium at MIT, which continues path-breaking research on the World Wide Web and on the future of the World Wide Web, which you'll talk about. Uh, Sir Berners-Lee is a modest man, has never sought the limelight, but the limelight has sought him. Uh, he's the recipient of many honorary doctorates, the knighthood. He's a fellow of the uh, Royal Society. He has been awarded the Japan Prize and the $1 million Millennium Technological Prize. Time Magazine a few years ago put him on the list of the 100 most influential people of the 20th century. Please welcome Sir Tim Berners-Lee, a very special person. Well, thank you, uh, and thanks all for coming. Uh, 
I'm going to give a talk uh, about the future in the sense of future hopes rather than future predictions. I've always felt that the predictions was a bad game to get into. Uh, but on the other hand, it, right as, as it was in the beginning of the web when I was giving lectures to puzzled audiences about how they should adopt this strange WWW technology, whose acronym was three times as many syllables as it was spelled out as a word, uh, they, that even if a large proportion of the audience thought, I can do that with my own, my documentation system, I don't need the web for that, why do I, why should I use your angle brackets anyway, uh, and so on. If there were a few people somewhere scattered through the audience who got that glint in their eye and thought, ooh, you know, I think I'll download one of those browser things, or I think I might run a web server, or I think, and, uh, and took it off, took the idea off, and started, got, and helped get the ball rolling, then it was definitely worth it. So what I'm going to talk mainly about is the things that I would like to happen. In particular, I'm going to talk about the web of data, which is the other half of the web uh, that, that we haven't done. I'm going to talk about a little bit about, in general, what is this we do when we make web protocols? Uh, I'll talk just a little bit about the web, mostly about this web of data, which I call, probably it was a mistake, the semantic web. Uh, if you have associations with the word semantics in your head, please put them aside, leave them at the door. We'll just use this to talk about a web of data. It's much more simple than the semantics of natural languages and things. And we'll talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the future implications of all this. So what's this philosophical engineering? Anyway, well, my... Uh, degree at Oxford was in physics, and at that point, it wasn't actually called physics. When you actually studied physics there, and you got to, to look at what your degree was in, or get to look at the examination papers, it was in experimental philosophy, which I thought was kind of cute. And it sort of makes sense. If philosophy is life, the universe, and everything, and then experimental philosophy is, I guess, what you can find out about life, the universe, and anything by poking it, or dropping it off a tower, or squeezing it, or something. And uh, so, so, so that makes sense. But then when you look at what we're doing now, there's a, when we make something like the web or the semantic web, we're actually defining laws. HTTP is a set of laws about how two computers interact, for example. HTML is a rule about how you can code information up and how it should be rendered. So we're defining these laws and creating a space. So if you like, Whereas a physicist goes into, looks at the macroscopic space and thinks, oh, the air in the room. It seems when you squash it, it becomes, the pressure increases by a factor of two. When you squash, when you squash it under certain circumstances, then the physicist imagines, supposing the room, the silly idea, but just supposing the room instead were filled with billiard balls, all bouncing around in an inelastic way, uh, so they cleanly bounced off each other, then what would happen when you squeeze the room wall in? And then the, then the physicist does some mathematics called statistical mechanics and figures out that actually if there were lots and lots of balls so small that you could basically ignore the fact that the, 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 there was just a huge number of them, en masse, they behave in just the same way as a... Uh, uh, as the gas does. So the physicist concludes that probably, you know, that there's no better, we don't, unless we have, until we have a better model, until the model breaks, we'll, well, might as well assume that the air is composed of all these balls. 
So the physicist is working out, guessing some microscopic rules of behavior, and then figuring out what sort of rule of those possible rules would actually lead to the observable world around us that we can poke and drop off a, a tower. And then, whereas what we're doing on the internet is we're thinking, well, it'd be nice to have a world in which, in which, all, in which somehow all of humanity could divide themselves into groups, and in each area there would be people who would become experts, and those experts would always be subject to being uh, questioned. But on the other hand, are, on, and the, and if they had some serious misunderstandings, there would be a system by which they would be led to understand that. But in general, for any question, there would be an expert you could, group of people you could go to, and there would be journal articles that you could read. And so we would have a very well-defined understanding about what was true, as we were talking about over dinner. What's, so what's true on Wikipedia? We're, supposing we solved that. Now, okay, that, supposing that's what we'd like. We'd like a sort of democratic system to replace peer review, but better. What sort of a, a web server do I have to write to make that happen? Somebody thought that and coded up a thing called a wiki. And there was and various wikis. Wikis took off. People like wikis. These are web servers where anybody can contribute. Lots of people contributed, and the result was Wikipedia. Okay, so there are these, there's this connection between the micro, what you do at the microscopic level and the macroscopic level. And in physics, it's generally doing analysis. We're trying to figure out looking at the microscopic, what the microscopic might be. And when we create internet protocols, we're doing synthesis. So this is this philosophical, that's, so hence philosophical engineering. We're creating new worlds where, which, in which the philosophy is as we would like it to be. And figuring out, and trying to do that by making network protocols and things. But when we make the rules, remember, the rules which govern how the web works are not just technical rules between computers. They're also social rules between people, of course. Let's take another example of this before we do the web. Let's look at email. The technical rules behind email are pretty simple for computers. They involve, but if you get, the basic rule behind email is if you get a, a message from somebody to somebody else, figure out of the various computers you're connected to, which one would be best to send it to to get it toward its destination and send it down that wire. So it's working like a post office. You sort, you route it to, in, in the right direction. And if, if all the routing tables are set up right, eventually the email will get, much like an IP packet does, it will get to its destination. And the social rules are you send an email when you think it's to the mutual advantage of you and your receiver. You don't send it when the receiver is not interested. You don't send it when you haven't got time to send it anyway. Right? And that worked really well. An email flourished in the academic community as the academic community used the Internet. And people sent messages with respect. <laughs> and then, so the so those microscopic rules had a nice macroscopic phenomenon. And then something changed. And then, the, the, so one of the parameters was changed. That it was the use of the email was allowed for commercial purposes. And still, it flourished. Still, you, the, then you sent email to people in in companies, where, and, and that was useful because you could talk about products. But then the parameters changed a little bit more. That there were enough people who had email at home, consumers, for it to be worth sending consumer spam to them. And then suddenly, the email system collapsed to the state of total disrepair that it is in today, when a lot of real people are considering going back to the telephone. 
because, because just isn't working. The thing is, is because the incentives are wrong, the stored forward non-authenticated system isn't appropriate when there is an incentive there for a commercial person to send out advertising material very, very, very cheaply. Looking at the web rules then, so, what, so technically the rules on the web, well, you know, you've heard about, HT, you know about HTML and HTTP, but you know the most important part, the fundamental part of the web specifications is the URLs, the things you think of as URLs. Actually, I'll call them URIs. And I don't have time this lecture to talk about really why it's important to think of them as URIs uh, rather than URLs. But so same thing, these things starting HTTP. These things that start HTTP colon typically are the, uh, these identifiers we give to on the web to documents and things that you can jump to within documents called anchors. And that's the most imp important part of the, of the web architecture. There's another part of the web architecture, actually, thing called rather clumsily the ladder of authority to interpret. There are a set of specifications out there. Some of them are specs from the World Wide Web Consortium. Some of them are from the Internet Engineering Task Force. And there's a few registries, and they connect together so that when you get a message through the mail or when you get uh, up on your screen a web page like this one, for example, this is, a, this is a web page, that in fact there are reasons by which you can believe that this is actually what the, the web page is supposed to look like. And that's because the URI started off with HTTP and there's a URI specification which says if you want to know what is associated with a URI, look, start off by looking at the first bit up to the colon, the HTTP, and then look that up in a registry of URI schemes. And there you will find a pointer, and in this case, it's a pointer to the HTTP specification. And when you look at the HTTP specification, that will say that you can open a TCP connection to something which has got the results of looking at the name of the service, and then sending it down a message saying, get something or other, and you will get back a whole lot of bits, but also in there, you will get back a content type. The content type will tell you whether it's HTML or SVG or something else, and that you look up in a registry, and that will point you to the specification for how to interpret the bits that come down the wire. So when the bits come down the wire, they don't just come down randomly. They come down with a label on them saying, this is how you interpret them. Here's the specification again. And so there's a series of specifications that all tied together, starting with the URI. And that's actually a really important feature of the web, because it means that if I say to somebody else, or I give, give them a URI, I have the expectation but if I saw a web page, I give them the URI, I can give it to them in place of the web page, and when they go and use it, they'll get the same thing in general. Okay, there are, there are complications, but in general, we've got this idea that you can hold somebody to have, written, to have said something because they, they can't say, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't have interpreted it like that, or you weren't supposed to look it up, or whatever, or yes, I gave you the URI, but, I, but what's there at the moment is, isn't what I meant to be there, and I didn't give you the permission to look it up. If you've got a URI starting with HTTP, that's an invitation to look it up and to use the specification. So that ladder of authority interpret becomes, when we go onto the web of data, becomes a whole lot more important. Obviously, one of the rules is you use standards. If at that point of going up through the ladder, instead of HTML, you get some PQRX specifications that nobody's heard of, communication has broken down. Well, you may be a member of a group of people that are using a new standard or using, you agreed to use some other protocol, but in general, it's nice to use the standards because, what you will be, because then what you put on the web will be reused by other people, other people that you don't even know. 
reasons you haven't even figured out yet. On the social side, what are the, the, what are the rules? Well, they're obvious, right? Uh, if you have, if, if you put something up in a URL, actually run a web server and put some useful information there. So if there's a URL for this talk, there is a kind of URL for this talk, uh, when you dereference de it, we're on the web, I suppose I could have done that, uh, you should get some useful information. You should get some uh, useful information. I wonder, in fact, whether uh, we've got net connectivity. You get some useful information. That information is from the some Princeton uh, event server. And you should have useful links in it to other things. Notice this is a lecture at Princeton, and there is no link to the university or to how to, you know, usual how to find Google Maps, how to get here by Google Maps and things. The assumption is you've come from somewhere else that I haven't come from. But uh, so that's just a, a, a to-do for whoever does that. <laughs> uh, thought I'd mention it. So, you know, the, the, so the rules are A, serve useful stuff, B, make useful links. Okay? And it's obvious on the web, on the semantic web, it's also very important. And of course, there's a whole lot of information laws. Laws about how we use and abuse information and use and abuse people with information about privacy and copying. And those, of course, all apply. Cyberspace is not a rule-free zone. Everybody is in some jurisdiction. Yeah, we need to tweak some of them, but they're, they're all there. So there's a whole set of rules which govern how people interact using computers and how those computers interact and what it means when they do. The wiki was, uh, is an extension, if you like. Somebody just added this little bit. They added a simple editor. They added, also, they added the, the microscopic rule of, about how the wiki itself works in, in, on, on the technical side. And on the social side, they added the simple rule that you see in Paris parks. You see a little sign that says, this park is placed under the safekeeping of the citizens. That's kind of nice, uh, meaning, I guess, use a poopa scuba, as you say over here and don't vandalize it and things, but it's nice. And so Wiki basically says, this is everybody's, folks. Please don't mess with it. Don't pee in the pool. And we are looking at what, how Wikipedia is coping when people do try to mess it up and vandalize it and so on, and whether they'll be able to cope with such a simple rule. But Wiki was, uh, Wikipedia was a tremendous phenomenon to, phenomenon to have occurred. Blogs, similarly. I guess trackback is a feature which was added to the web protocol. And the result was what people now call the blogosphere, that whole mass of blogs and the whole culture of blogs and so on, which uh, has just added a whole new dimension to what's on the web and took off fairly virally because when somebody started writing blog software. Semantic web is this web of data. And I'm going to talk a lot about that because it's the bit that we haven't done yet. Well, there's lots of things we haven't done. We haven't done collaborative stuff. We don't have 3D out there. There's all kinds of stuff we don't have on the web yet. But I'm going to talk about the semantic web uh, tonight. Semantic web is about getting the data. Like, for example, that calendar page, the page about this talk. That was there in HTML. But if I had taken that HTML page and dropped it onto my calendar, it wouldn't have worked. Now, I bet actually there was a data page, which would have, could have dropped, I could have dropped onto my calendar uh, to give credit. But for a lot of information out there, it's out there in data, but I can't use it in the application. Or I can only use it in one application. I can't use it in another application. So this is about putting information about things on the web. And the important thing, first important thing about the web is we use URIs. 
but not just documents, but also about things. So I have a URI. I'm not talking about a part of a web page which talks about me. In the semantic web, we are really talking logically about making statements about things and people. So we're raising up a level. We have the same, same standards. We use HTTP, but instead of HTML, we've got a data standard called RDF. We've got uh, ontology standard, the web ontology language called OWL, of course. We've got a query language called Sparkle and a rule change format, which is, uh, uh, which is just being started. The stars indicate that the Sparkle language is in the final stages of being worked on by a working group, and RIF is in the early stages. So if you're interested in query languages or rule languages, then do come along to the working group, review their documents, join the working group, help build the infrastructure. On the social side of the semantic web, well, guess what? Serve useful stuff and make useful links. We've had these, the RDF out there for five years, and lots and lots of people have done semantic web projects. And I've just, in the last few months, realized forgot to mention these bits. You find that there's lots and lots of RDF data packaged in zip files, right? You know people say, yeah, it's available, it's on the web, but it's packaged in a zip file. So it's not really available. I can't just point to it, and I can't point a machine at it. So I can't just incorporate it into other data. I can't treat it as being a continuum with the rest of the data I have. So some of it is just not served up. Other stuff is served up, but it doesn't have links out. It's, there, it's just a blob of data, and where other people have data about related things, there's been no attempt to use the URIs that they use to create a link between the data sets. So those are two important rules. The ontologies are these files which are written in OWL and typically, which describe the terms that you're using for your data. It's very useful if you have put some data on the web which have got the word, which, um, which for example gives a temperature and at a particular time, and the temperature and the pressure and the humidity at a particular time and a particular latitude and longitude. If you put that data on the web using RDF, you can make up your own terms. In fact, they're always URIs. So you can make up your own URIs for temperature and latitude and longitude. And that means you will understand it, the data out there, and you will be able to process it. But if you use the same URI for latitude as other people use for latitude, then other people will be able to process it, and they'll be able to put your data on the map. And that, of course, is very useful. With the semantic web, as with the web, the exciting thing is putting data out there in a way that other people will use it in unexpected ways. You put it out there for one reason, somebody else you've never met eventually uses it for a, ne a reason that you'd never imagined. That's the exciting thing, really. If you think about it, that really is the value add of the web. It's that serendipitous reuse. It's not the, re the planned reuse. You could do that with these monolithic documentation systems. It's a serendipitous reuse, the discovery, the, oh, wow, look what I found, look what I can do. And I want to be able to, we want, want to, be able to do that with, with data. To do that, you've got to be able to share ontologists as well. Sometimes you'll look for an ontology, you say, oh, somebody must have done time. Yes, they've done time. Okay, I've got date time, I'll use that URI for that, I'll use that URI for latitude and longitude. Now I want molecular weight. Molecular weight. Hasn't anybody done molecular weight yet? Oh, my. well, I guess, all right, I'll, uh, I guess I'll make one. I'll make up my own URI for molecular weight. And then later on, you find that somebody else has in, uh, they do have URI for molecular weight, but they meant something slightly different. Your molecular weight is an 
uh, it was an integer. And there's just a real number because this is the average molecular weight of this compound. So you then, if you're going to share data, then you've got to decide on whether you're going to stick with one of these or you're going to roughly convert one into the other. And uh, whether, so that you then have to, sometimes you have to go to the trouble of agreeing on terms. And that is hard work. And nothing makes that easier. Uh, semantic web doesn't make that easier. And in fact, it's more or less a cultural communication complete problem. It is the problem of getting different groups to talk to each other or getting different people to talk to each other. It's always been there. It always will be there as long as there's more than one person on the planet. Uh, and the semantic web just tries to make the tool, put the tools out there to make the process easier, to make the evolution easier so that if, for example, you start with separate terms, then you can later tell the system that, oh, these two are equivalent. And from then on, every single semantic web engine will just regard them as equivalent without everybody having to go back and change historical documents. So now, very, very quickly, this is Semantic Web 101 for anybody who's interested. Uh, I'm going to go zooming through this lot. We can go back to it if it's too quick. We can go back uh, in questions if you like. So the rule is we don't use words. We use URIs. Okay? Sometimes we take something like WordNet, which has lots of words, and we decide each one has, in fact, a very well-defined value. And so we put, it, we put some URI stuff in front of it so it becomes URI, so it gets the URI. This has a lot of advantages. We don't have to worry about whether we're going to use a U in color or not, one thing. And we're not going to have to worry as to what it means, whether it means RGB color or sRGB color or Pantone color or what. Each person who has a particular way, a particular property of color can define their own URI. And because URIs have ownership, example.com owns that URI. So if you want to know what it means, if you're not sure or you've got an argument about it, go to Example.com. By the way, don't take notes. All these slides are on the web at this address. Okay. Ah, it will be repeated at the end. Um, most of our data at the moment, well, the bulk of it, is in relational databases. It's in these tables, where for each table there's a column. There are lots of columns and lots of rows. Basically, the rows are stuff about a thing, like my car, for example, has various properties, and one column might be a particular property, like color. Take an arbitrary example, and this the value at the intersection, the cell, which is the atomic unit of information in a relational database, the cell says the color of my car is green. Now, that unit of information, in fact, is the building block for all semantic web data. Whatever data we have, we're going to represent it in that triple of the subject, the verb, and the object. Was that before? Actually, this, you can represent that using circles and arrows, where the subject is linked to an object or a value by an arrow. And they're all represented with URIs. So this is all, in fact, made up of triples of URIs, or two URIs and a value. So I own my car, where they're all represented with URIs, including own. My car's color is green. My car is currently at a location. The latitude of the, lo the, the location has latitude this. The location has latitude, has longitude that, and so on. So it's very, very simple. It's the simplest form of data which can, simplest data model which can actually be used to encode all the information there is, all the data out there, all other data models. It's very nice and uh, simple. It's, it, it's simple. It's got an XML syntax. And if you read the XML syntax document, you won't think it's syntax. It's simple. So if, 
you might want to start by reading some other documents, like looking at the Notation 3 format, which is a, a format we've made, which is simpler for learning, and there was a tutorial on it. If you look at the, uh, uh, the XMLRDF document first, it's a little bit hairy, and it's got some bits that you can skip. But basically, the syntax of this is not really relevant. What we must rise up out of the syntax levels, we mustn't be thinking about rows and columns of databases, or pieces of XML must be thinking about things. If you take the data from a table and represent it using circles and arrows, that's easy. There we are for each of these three subjects. These different cards, they have different properties, each represented by circles and arrows. So you get a sort of a rectangular pattern of circles and arrows. Now, a lot of data, which isn't in matrices, is in XML documents, which are tree-like. In fact, a huge amount of data is tree-like. In fact, people naturally arrange things into trees. We divide things, we categorize them. People feel very comfortable in trees for some reason. Um, and me too. Uh, and so we, we put our data, we're naturally comfortable in a tree. The problem with a tree for organizing data in an organization is that if you ask each person to do it, they will be very happy to do it. They will categorize things, and you will find the same branches occur in these different trees, but you will find that if you let these people do it independently, each make their own Dewey Decimal System, they may have the same tree-like structure, but they may have picked the root to be in a different place. And, that's, and in fact, if you try to get everybody in the organization to agree on the same tree, it's a huge amount of work. It gets huger as the organization gets bigger. And then once you've got your organization to agree on its classification system, when you meet another organization, there is no communication at all because you're each completely dedicated to the particular root of the tree conceptual root of your tree, or your, your particular class hierarchy. So trees are very nice. They don't scale to large organizations, and they don't scale between organizations. But, hey, you can represent them in circles and arrows, so it's okay. And you can remember, you can use URIs to identify the nodes. And the great thing about using URIs to identify the nodes is that if you've got some data which was in a tree and some which was in a table, and you load it together, and the URIs were the same, then, hey, look, now you've got a graph which has got information from the table, and it's got information from the tree, all merged together. It's not a table. It's not a tree. It won't go back into the toothpaste tube. You can't, you can't put it back into a relational database just like that. All you can do is make a list of all the circles and arrows, make a list of the arcs. It's a graph. So a graph is, in fact, a more flexible data structure. It's got lots of nice properties as well, which trees don't have. It's got no root. Nobody has to argue about where the middle of it is. You can, even though somebody made a huge table of particular properties, you can just tack on another one, invent a new or another URI, and for one particular element in that table, say something else about it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mess up anybody else. You don't have to re make new schemas. So the RDF graph is a better, much better topology. It's the only topology which will scale to a semantic web, web graph. Right? And so the RDF principle is using a graph and also modeling things at a higher level, not worrying about exactly whether it came from relational databases or XML. Nice thing is you have data in a blue document, you have data in a red one and a green one, and they merge together just like that. And that doesn't work for XML. If you have three different types of XML document and you want to combine them together in a single document, then you get a contract programmer for six months. You have to figure out what they're all about. He has to find out who wrote the schema for the first document, he has to find out who and interview them to find out what the, what the XML document means. And he has to interview the, the people who made the other documents 
till he understands what they're about and how they do interact. And then he writes a schema for a much more powerful document type, which will be able to encompass all that data. And then he writes some XSLT scripts, which convert the data in the first three formats into the third format. And then he's done it. And he's charged you for six months, 18 months work. And you only have to do that every time you merge three pieces. Whereas the RDF, you load them, and then you dump them out. And there you have the merged graph. And that's just where it starts. Okay, but fundamentally, people ask, why can't I do that with XML? I can do all that with XML. The answer is, yeah, you can the first time but not scalably. There was somebody at the Whitehead Institute, Brian Gilman, in fact, uh, I'm sure he won't mind being quoted. He worked for the, uh, the Whitehead Institute uh, in, in Cambridge, where he was responsible for a lot of life sciences data from different people. And he did this business of jumbling, juggling around all these uh, XML schemas and keeping lots of metadata about what the schemas were really about which would drive the engines he was creating to, in, to, to interface all these things. And, after, and at the beginning of the time, somebody said, why don't you use U, U, RDF? And he said, no, I can do it all with XML. At the end of the time, he'd reinvented RDF. He suddenly realized, and then he switched totally to RDF, and now he's a very strong proponent of it. But he said, without the three years of XML hell, he's not sure he ever could have understood the shift of, uh, of ways of looking about things. That's the worrying thing. Important things uh, you can do when you have three tables, which have got three columns in different tables, which actually have the same things, whether they're called zip code, zip code, and zip code, or zip where and, uh, and, uh, and Z. As you, can tell them, you can tell the system that actually they do mean the same thing. That's useful. So linking the columns, it's linking the URIs, which define the properties important. So the whole thing you can see depends on the way we share these terms. I said that you have to share them. And I said that when you try to get a group of people who use a particular terminology to adapt and merge with another group that use a different terminology, it's just a whole lot of hard work. I know it's hard work because the World Wide Web Consortium more or less spends time doing that, working groups, bring people together from all different places in the world, all different points of view, all different companies and organizations, fields, and get them, they, and they produce a language. And then when they produced a language, as they produced a new language, like OWL or something, they produced a whole lot of terms which become an impediment to them then explaining it to anybody else in another organization, another working group. So they may have to get break down the, this, the barrier between different working groups. So I know that the world is, that this problem won't go away. The important thing to realize is that Actually, you know, this is good, it's okay, it's fine, because there will be lots of different communities of different scales, and we don't all have to agree on every single term. This is crucial. But some of the terms, yes, like time and latitude and longitude, will be, I sincerely hope, global standards. Okay, just as you know, everybody turns on a GPS and they get these two numbers, Right, the, the WGS 84 latitude and the WGS 84 longitude. And when they've got those two numbers, okay, if we get a URI for the top one, URI for the bottom one, then everybody with GPSs can communicate. We shouldn't have to worry about it. But lots of other things, in fact, have got different properties. So, th for example, in this, there's an attempt to show how different applications can be connected through different through different concepts. These, the, the, the this, yes, it's the uh, London Underground map again. Uh, there's actually a really interesting book on how the London Underground map came to be, how people learned to actually use non, use topographical, to put topological maps rather than 
topographical maps. Uh, but uh, here the lines are concepts like time, or the green one is place, or the yellow one is personal identity. And if I, for example, take a picture with my camera, my camera doesn't know where we are. It's not one of those very, very smart ones. Uh, and, but it does know, it reckons to know what time it is. So it will put on here the time. Now, imagine that that web page which we saw had, it had the time of the place in RDF. Okay, next time I come to give a talk at Princeton, the condition will be the dot. And so then I could have sucked that up with my computer, and then my computer knows that I'm giving a talk because it's got from my personal identity and time and place. So this event information down here connects the time and the person and the place. And so if it knows that this was my camera, right, and I can put information on all this because I download it, that this, this is my camera, so it knows that I took a photograph at that time. And it can conclude, with a, you know, we can write rules to say it's reasonable to conclude then that I was at the event and therefore the, the photograph was at the event and therefore the photograph had this latitude and longitude. So we've connected through time the photograph to the event and we've connected through place the, the photograph now to the map. So now I can put photographs on, on a map and that's really interesting. Lots of websites which are just built to put photographs on the map because it is just so exciting to put photographs on maps. Okay, and there's another one I got invited to join recently, which just puts friends on maps. It just says, okay, there's, a per there's, fr there's this, these lots of friend of a friend sites like LinkedIn and so on, lots of communities, the Opera community site, which allow people to express the people they know. All right, there's a way of doing this RDF on the web, and it's called friend of a friend, and you should go out and do it after the talk. Uh, and make yourself, a, seriously, make yourself a friend of a friend page out there in RDF, where you can put the people you know. And that's, it makes a very interesting uh, network to explore, and you can put also in information like what your skills are if you're looking for a job and, so, and things like that. Uh, and, but, uh, the, the, so there's one web page, well, there's one website which allows you to put your friends on the map. It's all totally dedicated to mapping where your friends are. So in other words, it's, it's these web, there's a whole website which is just to do with connecting this to that. Now, just think if we could have a system in which all these things were connected, where you don't start off the morning thinking I'm, you know, with the ability to specifically connect any pairs of these, but then you could just go throughout not only this, but this is just the start. This should be connected to lots and lots and lots of, of these things. You should be able to go through, through chemistry and physics and connect them into biology and into clinical trials and so on and into medicine, starting off just by browsing through different things. So, uh, so that's really exciting, but we don't have to wait for all these things to be made as global standards because lots and lots of things. So in this case, for example, this ontology of parts, and this company, somebody working on, uh, this is customer relationship management, uh, shares with the engineering department and the public catalog the concept of part number. Did it take a long time to develop that concept of part number? No, because Acme Engineering, they just got part number. You know, they invented a URI for part number. They all know what part number is. It's because it's a small group of people who are, in, who are defining that term, then it doesn't take very long to make it. There's been a lot of fear out there that all oh, these ontologies will take so long to make. It's partly because some systems which have used the, the, the phrase ontology before have used that term for huge, great, humongous ontologies, uh, whereas the semantic web shouldn't be like that. It's lots and lots of overlapping ontologies. It's a real example from... Uh, from life sciences, but in fact, what's important is there will be lots and lots of different 
communities of different scale. When in your life, you're involved in lots and lots of different groups. And whenever you make a decision, in fact, when you're wondering what, to, what you're going to do this evening, you think, well, okay, this is, this is some public data about this, about this event you could go to, and there's some very private data about what you could be doing at home, and there's some staff in your group about what your group might be doing, uh, and there's some other public data about how you get to here, and, and so on. And you're taking, you're mixing data from very different, lots of different sources together, lots of different communities to make one single decision. That happens all the time. So the fact that the world is made up of all these different overlapping communities is important. It's a big fractal tangle. Excuse me, I don't know why it's gonna bring that back on. Uh, and in fact, the web has been shown in a large number of occasions to be fractal in various different ways. These results are from a, a sort of systematic web Google service, this Google service uh, at UMBC, which demonstrate fractal curves that show that there are lots of if you like, there are some ontologies which are very used and some, and some which are uh, used by a certain number of people and lots and lots of, of ontologies which are used by a very small number of people. There are lots of the results now also about this the, a fractal tangle being a, good, uh, being a good shape for the world to be. Let me give you uh, a totally tongue-in-cheek graph, uh, a table, about how long it takes to do a project. But people say, it's going to take too long because it's going to take me too long to make the ontologies because it takes so long to be in all those working groups. So let's consider now that I am, in fact, going to make an ontologies, but I'm going to use one from each scale. So I'm involved in lots of scales. When I do things by myself, 10 to the power zero is me. When I make an ontology, then I am a committee of one. This is a very quick way of making ontology. It takes me a week. Uh, and so, well, that's my, the cost, my point of view, of making an ontology is one week, one person week. But now, when I work with my team, it happens that my team is a group of 10 people. And, the, and when they work together to produce an ontology, they don't actually all work together. It takes too long for 10 people. And there are only four of these people actually really interested in it. So they elect this committee of four people to do it. Now, a committee of four takes longer than one person to agree on a, a set of terms. In fact, it's a well-proven result that because everybody has to talk to everybody about something, that it takes n squared, it goes up as n squared with the size of the committee. So they take 16 weeks to make their ontology. Okay, that is the bad news. The good news is that my share of that, on average, I can expect to be 1.6 weeks which isn't too much more than it took for the ontology which I shared only with myself. And of course, the ontology I share with my team is much more useful because all the data which uses those terms can, I, can now be, I can share with the team. So that the data I use that uses that ontology will be much more useful, shareable with the term, but with my team, but not with the, the rest of my group. Now, my group, group I'm a member of, has 100 people in it. And when they make an ontology, they typically elect a group, of course, of, 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 uh, a committee of size seven, which will take exactly 49 weeks to come to a conclusion. This is a lot of work, but mercifully, the, my share of that on average, when I count out the number of times I'm roped in to be in that committee, will only be on 0.49 weeks of work. Things get better, start to get better and better. So when we look at uh, this unit of 1,000 people, uh, the people who got together, I don't know, uh, excuse me, this, this uh, 
unit of 1,000 people, you can see how, how this goes. They take 100 weeks, but my share of it is only 0.1, and so on. And when you actually look at you go out to the scale of the planet of roughly 10 to the 10 people, kind of nice, there are 10 orders of magnitude. So we have a planet with roughly 10 to the 10 people on it. And at that scale, to, make a, to get an ontology that everybody, make a term that everybody will agree on, you get a committee of size 31, an international standards organization, or a W3C working group maybe, 31 people take 961 <gasps> weeks to make that standard, but basically my share of it I can ignore. Okay, so what do we learn from this? <laughs> what do we learn from this? Okay, one is that okay, you get, if I get 10 ontologies for the mere cost of 3.2 weeks, for really big ontology I might need 30, so it only cost me 10 weeks of work, and I have got in fact, when we've got this thing running and everybody's doing their work, then this, so the total cost of ontologies is, okay, is for a serious project, is only 10 weeks. All right, we've got 10 weeks, right? What are we doing over the summer? We could get this whole thing up and running over the summer. So, you know, the other, other lesson, of course, we learned in kindergarten, and we learn again and again, do your bit, and others will do theirs. theirs. And there's another lesson as well. You notice from the last line, we kind of tended to ignore the last line because it's done by somebody else. The chances are it'll be done by somebody else. If you run into one of these people who works in a large national or international standards body, then buy them a beer. Because think of that 961 weeks they spend doing this. Okay, so the, all, these, the, all these results, of course, are totally proven. Uh, they can be measured extremely accurately. But you... Uh, but you get the idea. The idea is that you're part of a web of little bits of semantic web connected at the edges. Nobody has to coordinate the whole thing. So how, so what, how, what, how are we going to actually build this stuff then? Well, we're going to put, just like the web, this is like the web architecture diagram where the arrow had HTTP and HTML and URIs, and this now has these semantic web standards, it's got HTTP in it still, now it has the query language, and it's got RDF and L. And on top we have all kinds of things that use, uh, that use data, that aggregate it, allow you to browse it and visualize it and run rules over it and anal analyze it, do inference upon it and stuff, and underneath you have all kinds of sources of data. Of course, just as with the web, it took people a long time to realize that most of the HTML files out there aren't HTML files sitting there going around on a disk. On a disk. Even though, I think, uh, more or less the second server at CERN was a, it was a phone book where every page was generated by a script. It was just a little script running on top of an existing database. Nobody had to convert all those things to HTML. They were generated on the fly. Uh, and now, of course, most webs, a lot of websites, a huge number of websites, are just generated on the fly from databases. And so it is, of course, with this RDF data. We have all this data out there, uh, but most of it will be generated on the fly from existing things. It might be generated, you can generate it statically or dynamically from all kinds of data files. All, all those interesting sorts of proprietary and non-proprietary data you have on your system, which other people could use, write a script, convert it into RDF, use URIs, share URIs, and it will become useful. Particularly, take those SQL databases. What you have to do when there's a SQL database, the important part is the mapping piece, because SQL schema you've got, and you can, there's various pieces of, of generic adaptation software that you can get, and I hope there will be more and more, and in particular, it looks as though these are going to be coming up from the mainstream database manufacturers. So you have just have to put, put a little bit more information which explains how the things in the database relate to an ontology. And then the, it can, the export can be done automatically. Same thing with XML. You can leave your XML stuff where it is, but put gadget on the side, 
that exports it onto the web. All right, we're not talking about, so semantic web adoption does not mean overturning the systems you use to maintain your data. Keep whoever's in charge of it in charge of it. Don't mess them up. Don't mess up the social systems you've got by which you actually agreed that the data will be made available and so on. Just add a little bit on to make it available as data too, as well as HTML. Okay? If it's there in XML, there's a nifty thing you can griddle afterwards. You can, you can Google afterwards. You can Google griddle, G-R-D-D-L. Griddle is a way of letting uh, the inquiring processor know that actually this XML has some semantics in RDF, and this is the XSLT script. It's the way of making a pointer from the instance or from the XML schema to an XSLT script, which will allow you to produce RDF. So you can produce stuff by virtual, make, making virtual RDF. You can also produce Sparkle services, which, will, which similarly will convert as they go in. And they may also do various bits of inference, which I won't go into now. What I will do is just say a little bit about the languages. This is the roadmap diagram which we, I put it up a future. I should actually say that should be roadmap because actually a lot of it is not uh, future. We said that we'd produce these various languages and you know what, uh, you know, RDF is now pretty old. RDFS is pretty old. Uh, OWL is now very established. A rules piece uh, from the original diagram now we split into two. Query, which is now done pretty much from the standards point of view. You can still review it. You can still get changes, but you'll have to, be an implementer and have a lot of credibility, and the rules which is just starting. And yeah, the unifying logic which will unify all things in higher order logic, uh, we have not got a lot further on. The world has not got a lot further on. But, we, but I must say that at uh, MIT, we're, uh, we've been doing all kinds of things with proof and with trusted systems, and with transparent systems and, and, uh, and policy-based systems and so on. So we've been working research-wise up. In fact, if you look at the way adoption of this has moved, of each of these levels has moved from being research areas to being languages which weren't standard, but which were languages through to being standard, it's a sort of a, uh, a, a, a this is the same standard, it's sort of a wave, if you like. In 1998, the uh, XML was pretty deployed, but the RDF was still uh, there were some non-web -sta standards, but we hadn't really started standardizing this lot. And then between then and 2003, you can see that we standardized all this, and RDF and RDFS became fairly, started getting fairly well deployed. Now we're, this, the wave, I suppose, is in the middle of rules and query, and there are lots of uh, non-standard but very interesting languages in this uh, area up at the top. So we have made progress. Uh, uh, on these languages, and this is, there's, uh, so go back to the slides and click on the links to find the work that's happening in the, in the consortium at the moment. One of the questions people, I suppose the main question, perhaps the question I want to answer this, this talk is, so why has this taken time? Because five years from, this is five years more or less from when we launched the Semantic Web, and the, uh, unless you count those slides I put into the first web conference, but let's not. So, uh, we can go back to five years after the web, then the web was in the tabloids after five years, more or less. That's about the point when it got, uh, you know, at first it was in the Economist, and then it, then it more or less percolated generally into the public con consciousness. When will the semantic web have got to that level? When will we have, expect most of the data out there, most of the weather data and the scientific data and so on out there? Well, it's, it's a bit more complicated. One reason is that the paradigm shift that we had of 
of not understanding why the web would be so cool to getting it. It's something people had to go through until we've now got this new generation who's been brought up with the web. It was difficult to understand what the web would be like before the web. And people who've gone through that, they saw the webization of documentation systems from being these closed things into being open things. They can't use that knowledge. They can't use that paradigm shift that they've been through and apply it to databases. Somehow, it doesn't work. If you find people who do everything with XML, the more involved in XML they are, the harder it is they, they, for them to realize that there's a that stepping back from XML and looking at things at graphs instead of trees will give them a completely different and really powerful new way of looking at things. So it's difficult to, to get through that paradigm shift. And designing these languages has been very much more difficult than designing HTML. Now, designing HTML was really, really easy. Okay, it was a whole lot simpler than most of the hypertext languages out there. It was, uh, and if there'd been something wrong with it, it wouldn't have really matter. There are all kinds of things that still are wrong with it. But no, the, the fact that you don't have footnotes when you print things, for example. You know, well, that doesn't really matter. If we'd have called P parrot instead of P, it wouldn't really matter. There are all kinds of things where a certain amount of sloppiness in the HTML design was fine. Whereas with data, we really have to have these relational models. We have to have description logic. We have to have, all the, we have, to have the logical foundation make really good sense. Unfortunately, in the working group, there are lots of people who want to make sure it really is done right. And so that takes time. It's much more complicated than just defining HTML. One of the things that actually we had the advantage of back then was I was at CERN, and I was working with high-energy physicists, and really I had to sell the web to high-energy physicists. And nobody else was at all interested, except from some hypertext geeks and some other people who had the next machine, because I did it on the next machine. Can you remember the next machine? Anybody here remember the next machine? Yeah, oh, yeah those were the days. Anyway, so, those, so there were small groups of people who got involved in the web, and it's much, easy, easy, much easier to get a critical mass within a small group. To get, if you need to get 10% of the people with browsers before it's interesting to put up a web server, then that's much easier to do amongst high-energy physicists than amongst the whole world. And now we've got the whole world looking at what we're doing in the semantic web. But fortunately, We've got now a small incubator community with the life sciences. A bit like, similar to the high energy physics folks in those days, they're, they're leading edge, they've got serious problems of data integration, uh, really, really exciting areas, it's got the focus of a huge amount of uh, money, interest, excitement, uh, desperate problems, and uh, also and smart people, very smart people who are capable of picking up the, this new technology. So. Uh, I think one of the mistakes I've made is when some people have said, so what will the semantic web browser look like? I've said, you don't get it, sorry. The semantic web browser is, uh, you know, the semantic web is behind applications. It's to do with connecting applications. You, would, you don't browse it, the web, that, that's the web. And I realized that was wrong because a very important thing about the web is that when you put something up there, you, you get that instant gratification of pointing a browser at it and seeing yourself in print. And people love that. And I, want pe and I realize people need to be able to see their data and immediately process and graph their data. We need to, so we need some good semantic web browsers out there. So now, just now, we started working on serious generic semantic web browsers. There was this fear of having to be ontologies, which I've talked a lot about, and there was a lack of query language. Somebody pointed out recently that we were developed, we, for five years we've been setting people on putting their data in RDF into this system, which is basically a relational system. It's a bit like trying to get them to use relational databases without SQL. What will be the point of having the data if you can't query it? 
We've only just really got Sparkle there. And for a lot of people, Sparkle is something which suddenly makes their data usable, because really what they want to do is to query. So there are a few reasons why it's been, it, it hasn't immediately just taken off like that. It's been a lot of hard work for a lot of people. But it is absolutely the case that we are locked into that exponential. The, the World Wide Web took off completely exponentially. The load on the first server increased by a factor of 10 every year for the first three years. And on log graph paper, you could put a rule through it. Uh, and the semantic web is also showing a very, very strong just number of people at conferences, number of people, I should have done it when we started, who's, who's heard it roughly about the semantic web, the number of people in audiences who heard about it, the amount of data out there, number of tools, the involvement of industry is certainly latched into it, exponential growth. So it's just an exponential, just at the beginning of the exponential, it takes time. The good news is that, we're, that, that we are getting there. I think most of those things uh, are covered. We've actually got some ideas about making user interfaces. And actually, we should have been use, working on user interfaces all the time because user interfaces are so much more fun than working on all the details of the logic. So when you get home, okay, friend of a friend, remember that? Make yourself a friend of a friend page. Give yourself a URI. Some folks sites will tell you how to make a uh, friend of a friend information, but they won't give you a URI. When you publish an address about yourself, give yourself a URI, because if I want to refer to, I want to be able to use that URI so that anybody, any system can go pick up information uh, about you, the information that you've decided you want to be public. Okay? Uh, look at other data you have and put it out there, okay? If you're a scientist, you, if, uh, of any sort, if you have a collection of things, if you've got information which is, you keep in some sort of application, which has got some sort of a data format, which other people could use. Yes, you might already have some sort of script which ex exports it onto the web as HTML, but if it's data that could be reused and joined with other data, then could you please go out there and stick it out there in, uh, as data in RDF? And ideally, remember the links to other data. Okay, tabulator is, a, is a, you can Google RDF tabulator and you'll find uh, a little, this little user interface you can play with to see, to, uh, see whether it works to whether it really has been exported properly. Okay, so main thing, so there's a lot of complicated logic in, in, the, uh, in the semantic web which you can focus on if that is what interests you, but a really important thing to concentrate on is remembering to actually make data, to put the data out there. The result, of course, of putting all this data, as for the web, will be a huge number of social implications. There will be some really dramatic ones, I hope, that suddenly it will be much easier to discover the you know, cures for diseases and things like that. There will hopefully will be some very dramatic empowerment, but clearly there will also be a lot of concern. And one of the, and obviously, all the data out there, like on the web, won't be equal. So most semantic web engines will either be, limit, will be using a very limited amount of the semantic web, or they'll be, have smarts and they'll be understanding where data can, comes from. So the stuff we're building at MIT certainly is, are the, are, these are programs which are aware of where data is coming from and they're aware of where data is going to. Because if you've combined data from various sources, obviously you may not be able to tell everybody about it. You may be breaking some rules just by combining that source, the data which you had access to, you may not be able to give it to other people. So an awareness of policy, with policy aware systems, and transparent systems, systems where when they come up, the inference engine eventually says, yes, person is a terrorist. You can say, uh-huh, why? Yeah? Press the oh yeah button that I've always wanted to have on a browser. Oh yeah? 
So, come on. Explain yourself. Justify yourself. Why do you think this person's a terrorist? Why do you think I need to reestablish my credentials with the Bank of America? Right? Yeah? So, because, yeah, because you've got, because somebody in Nigeria wants me to. Ah, I see. Okay, so, but things, so transparently, because we know this person's a terrorist because we've used, the, or this person, there are a lot of times when, when an agent of the government can use some information for keeping you off a plane or for stopping you let off a bomb, but they cannot use, but the same information sources are not allowable for chasing you down when you have a library book, which is laid back. So being able to say, all right, so yeah, okay, so I've got a late library book. But interesting me, I want to know what information you used. Because if you used Homeland Security information, that's really inappropriate, and I keep a library book. So, uh, but, but this is serious, uh, in fact, serious area, and I think we want to be thinking about it. We're hoping that this uh, planning that the semantic web will take off, we're taking it off for transitive, and, we, and as it is, we have to be sensible and think about the ethical implications and the sensible uh, sort of and pro-human use of the data. So this whole space I've talked about, which is all, which is construction, it's analysis, it's philosophical engineering, it's about having new dreams, building new systems, it's about making up new rules, both technical and social. We're starting to call it a new field called web science, uh, which we think, in fact, uh, could do with uh, people coming together from all kinds of disciplines. Uh, to work together to solve these things. And that, for what it's worth, is my, are, my, are my hopes for the foreseeable five-year, 10-year future of the web. Thank you very much for your conclusion. We have a few uh, people with microphones walking around the audience, and the speaker will take some questions. Uh, quick question. What was the book you, rec you were thinking of in terms of non-topological maps? What did you say again? When you, were, you had a slide, it showed the relationships between time and location, and, and you had mentioned that there was a book about the London Underground that you had liked. Sorry, I have, there's a book about? You had mentioned there was a book you liked about maps. Oh, about the London Underground. Yes. I'm sorry, I can't remember. Any, can anybody remember who wrote the book? Who, does, who wrote the book about the London Underground map and its creation? Hmm? Edward Tuft? No, no, it's not. No, it's not his visualization book. It's specifically about the creation of the effort to get the London Underground map as is adopted. I also had a selfish question. If you would sign your book, if that's possible. Sorry. I had a selfish question. If you would sign your book, I have a copy of it. Sign the, uh, afterwards, no, not now. No, no. Uh, if you have a full page, um, if you promise to make one. Question from this side, anybody on this side? Can you display that URL again for your talk? Uh, You can Google for London Underground Map. There's a, um, we all know about the, the digital divide within society. When you're working at 
at MIT, does that ever come up about the divide between those who are super intelligent and understand these systems and aspiring students who want to learn these systems? Is there any effort to bridge that gap between that knowledge divide that exists out there? Well, that's what all of life is about, really, isn't it? The question was, is there, uh, is there an attempt to bridge the knowledge divide? And if MIT is an institute of learning and, and education, that's what it's to, trying to do. Um, the, I'm, the digital divide is many. There's, there's the, so there is the divide between those people who've, been lucky, who've learned, who learn it or have been brought, brought up in an environment where you are taught how to deal with complicated technical things, uh, and people who haven't been brought up that area. There's the, the, so there is the divide between the rich and poor, and there's the divide between developing countries and developed countries. And all these are, of course, of great concern. If you like, as we develop new technology, like the web, we add to, there's an existing list out there of, uh, of things like uh, healthcare and clean water, which are things which distinguish, you know, in which there is already a huge divide. And we add internet access and access to knowledge uh, to, to, to the bottom of that list. And we give ourselves another agenda, a huge agenda item where there is a debt that effectively, ethically, the developed world has to the developing world and the rich have to the poor. Uh, clearly, there is, uh, there is a moral requirement to try to bridge that as much as possible. Specifically, if you mentioned MIT, uh, and if you're interested in people who have not had access to the thing, one of the things that MIT is doing is the OpenCourseWare project. The OpenCourseWare, MIT OCW. Okay, Google for MIT OCW. And uh, that is a project to basically take all the material to do with courses, certainly the lecture notes and the slides, and often the video and the audio and the, uh, and the, uh, and the questions. You know, everything which, is, which could, can be put into bits on the web and make it available totally for free to absolutely anybody enrolled or not. So MIT decided to do that, and there are a, number, a growing number of institutions which have decided to do that as well. So now, if you want to, if you, are, want to, you can get a whole bunch of electronics courses in MP3 to put on your iPod to listen to on the way to work. Uh, for example, you can go on and, but I think so, so that's an example of one thing. I think there's a, another whole area which is really important. That is to look at the technology and to see how we designed this for ourselves. Would we have designed internet technology differently if we were in a rural environment and we didn't have a whole bunch of fiber optic connections, for example? I th so I think rural environment self-organizing networks are, uh, are pretty important. Um, you know, looking at the, the, the economics of uh, how the networks are, be, are being put together. The, uh, but the whole, the whole question of getting network connectivity into uh, the developing world is just you know, a, a big agenda item. It's going to cost money, just like getting medicine in. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd like to ask you this question about the, uh, with the ex exponential expansion of the web, there must be some limit. I mean, is it the number of wires or the bandwidth or the number of servers that can be built or access time or what are the limits? Well, a lot of, there, there are a lot of limits. One of the interesting limits 
is that uh, if you look at for email, for example, and you discard spam, so you look at email from person to person, uh, that's really limited because people can only write so fast. Even, you know, for some people who are amazing about their <laughs> the stuff that they manage to reel off, but still, the, the speed of the fingers is, is a, uh, limitations. So in a way, if everybody were restricted to sending emails one at a time to individuals, uh, there would be a whole lot of, co uh, of interesting correspondence, but there would be a certain, but the amount of actual bits would be easily carried by the fiber optic channel. So, the, so, so there are, and so there are some fundamental limits to human beings. Just because there's more and more data out there, doesn't, and just because the machine can tell, you know, tell me about how many RSS feeds I have unread and emails I have unread, doesn't mean it's increased my ability to actually read stuff. So in fact, the, the fundamental limitation is, as a human being, I've got the ability to be involved in, say, 10 things you know, in a day. Now, the interesting thing the web does it allows us to change the topology. So I can choose, instead of being involved in something in my town or something in my, sort of in these various different scales, I can be, you know, in the national elections, I can decide, in fact, not to, I'll be involved in, look, I'll be interested in the national elections, but for the town, I am going to go and get involved in the elections in a town in Africa instead. Because I realized that we don't have enough connectivity at the moment. We don't have enough understanding between peoples so I'm going to understand more about Africa. I'm going to be the person in my town in Massachusetts who understands a particular village in Africa. So that when in, in Massachusetts people make decisions which actually affect people in Africa or can be informed by what the folks in Africa, in African village have discovered, I can be the link. And if we keep doing that in different ways, we pick. So instead of just trying to push the limits of the amount of email that we can speed read, instead we do the same amount of stuff but choose it differently. We arrange ourselves differently. So we're in a fractal one over ref sort of uh, environment, but instead of it being on the surface of the globe, very much geographically oriented, sort of more hierarchical, we're starting to break down the barriers. That, that I think is interesting. In a way, it's, that's where we get connectivity for rearrangement, but without having to stress out the individual people and burn them out. Um, you asked about whether, you know, whether the, of course the limits on every, yeah, exponentials tend to be parts of, you know, the FS curves. Uh, an S-curve is an exponential at each end, okay? So things like the number of televisions per household was a sort of, you know, it has an exponential growth, and that turned into an S-curve, and yeah, maybe it's, it's sort of climbing now from one to two to three, but the, there's a sort of a transition, a little bit like a neuron switching, inverse hyperbolic arc tangent. Uh, uh, and so, yes, you can look at all these exponentials as being part of an S-curve, but... Uh, I don't know whether at the moment, for example, for data, we're so far down the curve. There's so much more data not on the somatic web than is on the somatic web. We're very, very much down where it's, where it's exponential. There's, no, uh, there's not really much leveling off happening, whereas it may be that for internet connectivity in developed world cities, then we're starting to get, we'll get connectivity. You know, the, the, the number of, the, the percentage of homes connected to cable, for example, is going to flatten out before it passes 100%. So yeah, a lot of the curves are going to flatten out. Uh, well, somebody was down in here, a gentleman with a blue shirt first, and then we'll come back on this side. You want to organize all data, all knowledge. Aren't you going to need basically a large number of triplets, one being the URI of the data, another being the URI of the accessor or person or organization, and the third part of the triplet being the policy, the URI of the policy you're putting in the machine, and then who gets... Um, well, 
the metadata about the policy, which connects the policies to the web, to data, are just, it's just more data. So it's just, it's just more triples, yes, it's all encoded in RDF. Uh, or, uh, in fact, we find that for policies, we have to, we can encode some of it just as data, sort of allocating things to, to, to people to groups and, and groups uh, and documents to policies and things. Uh, also, then, we tend to re define how, the, what those policies mean using rule languages, and we have standard rule languages coming out. We're using non-standard ones at the moment at MIT. But if you look at a lot of, a lot of systems, you know, policy-based systems, you can represent what they do in terms of rules. So when we have a standard rule language, we'll be able to take all those policy-based systems and export, they will be able to explain to everybody what they do by exporting it in the standard rule language, so that we'll be able to integrate them into, uh, into a seamless, uh, seamless web. And who's got the... Uh, Microphone. Uh, question. All right. Uh, question about ontologies and how they are updated, corrected, and just generally uh, agreed upon or refuted. I'm thinking in cases of either deliberate deliberate lies, mistakes, or places where there's a legal problem. Like uh, I may be misstating the legal case, but for instance, my understanding is that if you were to uh, create any ontology that says, say, Kashmir is part of India, you could not publish it or state it in Pakistan, or vice versa. If you say it is part of Pakistan, India would refute it. Uh, how are these agreed upon or corrected or evolved when something like that is encountered? Uh, well, most of the social mechanisms for that sort of thing exist. For example, so a classic source of information about that is the CIA Factbook. CIA Factbook was one of the earliest things put on the web, and I think it's one of the earliest things you can get in, get in RDF now. So, yeah, really, the CIA factbook, you believe, you know, believe me. So I was surprised to see it out there uh, in the early 90s, too. But, okay, so the CIA puts the, uh, puts the facts about countries out there for people who are going to travel there. Um, I suppose, particularly American undercover agents. But, <laughs> uh, but, and, but they, and, and they have rules by which they, you know, they, the things get through the editorial board and are okay as to whether they're right to publicize and whether, and, and I'm sure they have also systems for dealing with cleaning up errors and ways of apologizing. And per perhaps in the case where they've sent somebody to a, uh, somewhere which in fact is very dangerous when they said it was very safe, they probably have got ways of trying to track them down and get, bring them back. But uh, so lots and lots of data systems have got ways of dealing with the way they, uh, different with social ways of, of defining what they mean by data that's good enough uh, to publish. And lots of different systems have been set up for using data which, they, which we can guarantee is good enough to use. And every application you go into, you'll find that the social systems are different. So my conclusion is very much that if we were to try to simplify and make one sort of system like a grid on which you put all data or a trustworthy level, trustworthiness level, which you'd associate with anything, everything, we would do the world a huge disservice because we'd force everybody into adopting our own model of how to trust stuff. And a lot of things like the public infrastructure, for example, in a way it's trying to force people into a particular model of how to trust. Why should, you know, you should trust this person because they have a certificate signed by this certificate signing company, when you don't even know the certificate signing company, uh, things like that. So, so I think that our goal should be to make these semantic web languages sufficiently powerful in their logic to be able to really express the sorts of uh, <clears throat> the, the, what it is that we're, we're prepared to trust and really express those rules for moving data from one place to another. 
so uh, so we can uh, so we can take all those that diversity of different systems, different policies, and actually implement them automatically and automate the system and make it clear and publish, make it clear so that you'll be able to do things like prove consistency of things or prove that policies are consistent when you combine systems and, and, and things like that. So that's why on the top of the Semantic Web Stat there's these trust, trusted systems and they've got cryptography up, uh, up the side which they put together where, with the Semantic Web Logic languages and hope to be able to make trusted systems. I don't know whether that answers the question. It answers some question, I think. <laughs> well, there's a gentleman in the back who was anxious to get a question in. Yeah, I just surprised oh, one. Gentleman in the back beard. They all jump up. <laughs> uh, with the recent popularity of uh, rich media like video coming on online and also peer-to-peer -peer technologies like Skype, do you agree with those who say that we're headed for a bandwidth crunch or a, a traffic jam, as it were? On the internet, well, we've been headed for a traffic jam on bandwidth on the internet ever since the internet started, I think. Um, and I'm not particularly worried about it. Did you remember Bob Metcalf predicting that there would be a mega lapse? Bob Metcalf does a great. He's the guy who invented the Ethernet, and he's uh, he's uh, often invited to conferences to wrap up, to give a summary conference at the end. At the end of one of the web conferences, he said he predicted that with all this increase in usage, particularly all these uh, things, that, you know, big pictures and things, that there would be what he called a mega lapse, that, that there would be something like a million user minutes would be lost in the next year. And Rohit Curry, who was in the audience, called and says, okay, so what are you going to do if, if you're wrong, Bob? He says, okay, well, I'll eat my words. So, well, he predicted a mega lapse, and so he was invited back the next year. There had been no mega lapse. Uh, so he liquidized his article. He prepared two verticals, versions of the article. Uh, one he liquidized in what he says was, was, was plain water, and he drank it. Uh, and he, produ he first produced a cake with his article paint printed on, and he was booed, out of, uh, booed off the stage. <laughs> that was, that was <laughs> so he actually got the real article, and he drank, and he, liquid, he, he zoomed it and, uh, and drank it, uh, indicating that, yeah, he, he admitted that it had not happened, and it hasn't uh, uh, really happened since. There have been some pretty serious breakdowns. Actually, I think the worst thing about that was that he wasn't sure whether it would, whether it would affect him, so he practice first, so he actually had to eat his article twice. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there might be, um, uh, there might be because of the, the use of, for example, uh, 3D video, well, stereoscopic high bandwidth video. From, if everybody has, if, if I, everybody has cameras on both shoulders, then boy, you know, we could get a lot of data about this room really quickly. But then we, yeah, so I think, yeah, it'd be really pretty easy to imagine a technology which would really sink any, you know, any reasonable, well, certainly, for example, it would take all the bandwidth you could imagine possibly getting out of the radio spectrum in the room, okay, uh, just by having wireless, wireless 3D uh, TVs, TV, TV cameras. But actually, for all these things, most of the web things I do, like the blogs I read, the number of bits in a blog or the number of bits in a specification, but number of bits in text is really, really minuscule by any standards bandwidth at the moment. And most of the interesting things I'm involved in, including the semantic web data, even if it's a beautiful graph, the data behind it is a relatively small number of bits. So look, most of the exciting things, including all the collaboration and annotation that we're doing, 
the, uh, the editing and the blogging and the Wikipedia, all these things which are getting people excited, use really small number of bits. So all we'd have to have is a rule that, that if you're going to drop packets, you drop the video packets first. And all that stuff is safe. And all that stuff is safe and so cheap that you know, because, uh, the, because everybody assumed that, that video on demand will be what would drive the, would drive the, uh, the cable requirements for, for fiber, that we've got really that, that uh, I think we're not going to have, we're, we, we, if we just restrict ourselves uh, to, to the data and the text and uh, the stuff which actually runs most of our lives, then we, I don't think there's any conceivable problem. Okay, I think we've probably run out of time more than once. Okay, thanks. Thank you.